Well, I'm so glad to be back with you. We're in a period with your congregation where you're in a relationship, a provisional connection to Tikkun that began during David Rudolph's uh, time here with the transitions that you've been undergoing and are still undergoing, and we're hopeful that we're helpful with that in counsel and oversight, uh, largely being handled by David Rudolph's father, Michael Rudolph, who's been here on his 70-mile-per-hour scooter. (laughs) I had a lot of fun joking with Michael because he went down to visit his son in Dallas. He wanted to see where he lived and what he was doing and where he taught. And I said, nobody would realize it, but you went all the way to Dallas, 70 miles per hour on that little scooter. And it was true, and it was quite a trip for him. Marie was just standing on the back through the whole trip, We just did have our Tikkun conference, which I hope many more of you will come to next year. It always is the weekend after Memorial Day, so uh, you can already begin to plan for that next year. And it looks like next year we're going to have quite a, I don't know whether it's kind of a heritage recovery and a passing of the baton to new leaders while we're still involved or what it is, but... My son Ben had this very strong vision that we needed to have a conference where we brought everybody together. So he, we're having a conference that will have some guest speakers, but Eitan Shishkoff will be there from Israel, uh, Asher and Trader. Uh, they've founded our network, and me and Michael Rudolph in the early 80s when we first founded our network, and uh, Moisha Morrison. But the three of them will be there, Paul Wilbur, We expect Mike Bickle to be there from the International House of Prayer, Uh, Misty Edwards for singing along with our own worship teams. Uh, So it's going to be really quite a time together. I wanted to also say, before I get to the message, I'm really happy to see Ron and Alana Cantor here, if they would stand up. Now, some of you know that Ron grew up in Richmond, so he has a real desire for the success of this congregation. And the other amazing thing about Ron is he is a cantor, but unfortunately that job's taken. The cantor does a wonderful job here, Ron, so you're not going to be able to... You're not going to be able to get his job, so that's not open for you. But... Um, Ron uh, is, is more t- toward the, uh, the evangelist side of things, although he's quite a terrific foundational preacher. I can really trust him to teach a lot of the things that I teach. He's been with us for 29 years since he moved down from Long Island to be with us in Washington. And his dear wife, Ilana Asabra, uh, from the city of Ashkelon. So we're really happy that they got together in our congregation years ago. Uh, But I I wanted to say that Ron did yeoman's work because he became the spiritual leader of Teferit Israel uh, for the last several years, I think over three years, and he's still going to be a continuing elder there as they raised up a Sabra native leader to take that congregation. Uh, Asher and I brought him kicking and screaming into the kingdom with regards to this role because he doesn't believe long-term that that's his role, but he did an amazing job, pulled it together, saw the congregation uh, transition from the Sarkarams. They're part of our growing network in Israel, and uh, we so appreciate the job they did in Israel. But now he's going to be part-time in Israel and part-time in the United States because his calling in media, evangelism, bringing revival, other things like that, means part-time in Israel and part-time here. So they're going to be based in Richmond, and it's my hope that you will see them more often. So uh, enough said about that, but we're delighted you're here. And that's with our confirmation. He's not in rebellion to his senior fathers. Wow, what a wonderful day. The weekend of Shavuot. No one knows for sure when it exactly is, you know. 
and there's controversy over it. The famous uh, Hebrew archaeologist, Elat Mazir in uh, Israel, who excavated the palace of King David, argues that both the church calendar and the Jewish calendar that we use for the date of Shavuot is wrong. And she's got her whole reasons for the original biblical solar calendar. So that kind of blows people's minds. And so what is our response to the more legalistic-minded people who say, unless we get the exact day right, we're really in trouble? Well, that doesn't work very well in Israel because in Israel, the day off is going to be the day off according to the rabbinic calendar and the Orthodox will be in synagogues and the secular will be at the beach and that's just the way it is. So, um, you know, my view is that the application of Torah in the New Covenant order has a practical flexibility to it. And that you aren't to get into the worries. You'll find some people, if you're given to internet theology, that really are overly exercised about this. And they're trying to get you to adopt a pattern of life that doesn't fit either the church or the synagogue, which I think is very unwise. Uh, for us in the Messianic Jewish world, you know, we, we, we have generally given credibility to the day on the rabbinic calendar. And we've given credibility to the day... Uh, of the first day of the week as it would uh, flow from the Shabbat, the first day of the week after Passover, and then the, the Sunday after counting the 49 days and all of that, and sometimes it coalesces. But this is not something in 44 years that I get uptight about in terms of getting the exact day right. Uh, so um, I hope that that doesn't offend anybody here who might be searching the Internet for getting it right. The day of Shavuot is a very important day because I think the calculation is correct that the Torah was given on that day. Now, I, I, I was going to say something about my books. I have my books here, you know, and I want you to get the books because they'll talk about the meaning of the fulfillment of the feast and they'll talk about the meaning of the fulfillment of this one more in depth than I'm going to be able to share about today, especially the book Israel, the Church in the Last Days and Jewish Roots. But uh, also, just to mention it, I have a book called The Story of Samuel, which what we went through when my son died 18 years ago, that just came out. I have a book called Mutual Blessing that came out a year ago on the nature of where we're going for everlasting life and what the purpose of creation is and how it's ordered and what your purpose is. So look at the books. Also, by the way, if you're not on our mailing list, please go on the Internet and sign up or leave us your name and address and email because all of you want to be following what we're doing in the network as well as in Israel uh, where we're a growing movement in Israel uh, that I think is important to us all. So we have the day of Shavuot in Acts chapter 2. We understand that the Torah being given at this time had a fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out on those gathered on the Feast of Shavuot. I believe they were gathered in the temple. And you all remember what it says here. When the day of Shavuot came, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and tongues like fire were spreading out and appeared to them and settled on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, and began to speak in other tongues, languages, as the Ruach enabled them to speak out. And you all know the story of how in this amazing miracle, thousands of Jewish people responded, went through the mikvah because they heard the gospel in languages of the nations that they had come from. They went through the mikvah in the name of Yeshua and they became part of that new body of Jewish believers in Jerusalem led by the apostles Shlichim that Yeshua chose. You all know that. You've heard that. How many messages have you heard on that over the years? Probably a lot. And of course, there's a practicality to it because if the Torah was given on Shavuot, 
then isn't it appropriate the Holy Spirit was given at the same time because he is the power of God that dwells within us, that fills us, that enables us to fulfill Torah. So the two are brought together in Romans 8, 4, where Yeshua says, the righteous requirement of the Torah is fulfilled in us who walk by the Spirit. Not the doing away with the Torah, but Torah in its fullness of meaning fulfilled in us who walk by the Spirit. How many have heard messages about those things? Raise your hand. All right. Everybody's heard message. Not everybody, but almost everybody. But I just thought I should mention it because it is the Feast of Shavuot. But I'm not going to preach about that today. Because you've already heard it. Just let me say that in our network, we are passionate about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Because we believe without the manifest presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we will not provoke our people to jealousy and bring them to the Lord. We can have a Jewish atmosphere, rabbinic traditions to make our people feel at home, but we are not going to provoke them to jealousy without the manifestation of power. And if you understand the nature of uh, bringing Jewish people to the Lord, and I've been in this for 44 years, Jewish people come to know the Lord because they have an encounter with the supernatural through Yeshua, through the Holy Spirit. And that's the way it happens almost all the time. And this is why congregations that have more of the power of the Holy Spirit are able to do more in regards to effectiveness in winning our people. Um, I'm pretty sure I've observed it all over the world in Messianic congregations. So that's why this day is very important to us for that truth. But I want to talk about something else. In the church world, they look at the Feast of Shavuot, which they celebrated back in May... I think about the 15th of May. Boy, are our dates apart this year. Some days they come, some years they come together, some years. And this is one of the years we're the most apart. They're the most apart. But they look at the Feast of Shavuot, which they call Pentecost, as the birth of the church. Because that is the day in which these thousands of people came to know the Lord. And that the church is something new. And of course, if this is taken too far, it actually goes to the point of replacement theology where this is where the church is born, which is that institution that will replace Israel. But there's a truth here. Because there is something new that happens on Shavuot in that when the people were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Shimon Kepha says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. You know, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on your servants, slaves, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit. It is by that outpouring of the Holy Spirit that something new was formed. And what was formed was a community of followers of Yeshua within Israel. But that community, which is a community within Israel to renew Israel, was formed and it was different. But it wasn't just totally new at Shavuot. It was something that began in the preaching and teaching of Yeshua when he gathered around him the 12, and then he gathered the 70, and by the time of the upper room, there were 120. Plus, he had followers all over the land of Israel by this time. So they were already primed to receive the good news as it would eventually be taken from Jerusalem by the Shlichim. So from what I understand historically, communities of believers popped up all over Israel in the first century. But this was a remnant within Israel. This was a renewal movement within Israel. But it was new and it was different. It was an explicit fellowship in Yeshua that was formed on the basis of believing that he was the Messiah, 
formed on the basis of the fact that he died for our sins and formed on the basis of the fact that he uh, indeed had filled us with the Holy Spirit and was coming again and would rule and reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem. It was formed on the basis of the belief that the kingdom had broken into this world and was in manifestation through these communities and through the signs and wonders that they were doing. Okay, so there is the formation of the new community of believers in Jerusalem on the feast of Shavuot. So there is a truth to what the church says about that. But I want to talk about the identity of the church, and I'm going to use the term church because that's the term that the church uses for itself. I don't want to use the, uh, the term because it is a term that refers to a building, which is a tremendous problem linguistically. I don't like to use the term because of what misunderstanding it has in the Jewish community, but I feel forced to use the term because the church calls itself the church. And I want to refer to it as the people who say they are followers of Yeshua and they call themselves the church. What is their identity? And I want to go back to the book of Acts and I want to look at this question of the identity of the church or what the church should see as its identity from the Bible. Because as a Messianic Jewish community, we should be tied to believers in the larger world of the body of believers, and we need to understand their identity so we can help them to understand their identity. Actually, we have a call to help them understand their identity. One of the great mysteries in the book of Acts is that there's no mission to the Gentiles for the first many chapters. You know, it says that when Yeshua talked to the disciples about his death and resurrection, and he did it several times in the Gospels, that the meaning of it was hidden from them, and they couldn't get their arms around it. And so when he died, it was a surprise to them. It was a shock to them. They still didn't expect it in spite of what he said. And you might find it strange when Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 28, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, that there was no mission to the Gentiles. I believe it was the same thing. That even in Acts chapter 1, when Yeshua said to them, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It was very easy for them to interpret this to mean that we're going to have a mission to the Jewish people who live in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and who live in the uttermost parts of the earth. They were not interpreting this to mean they were to go to the nations, at least not yet. Because the Jewish disciples, I am convinced had with them the same interpretive framework as, excuse me, just drop some papers here. They had the same interpretive framework as the first century Jewish Pharisees and Essenes, not the Sadducees, they didn't believe this, that at the end of the age there was coming a mighty intervention of God. That God would be coming in a mighty day of the Lord. A day of wrath and a day of deliverance and salvation. And when God came in this mighty day of the Lord, Israel would be delivered from all oppression. The rest of the Jewish people, the majority of whom were in the diaspora, would return to Israel. And that the glory of God would so be shown to the whole world through Israel that the nations would unmask after the judgments, after the tribulation, after the trials, that the nations unmasked would turn to the God of Israel. And of course you can read about that and all the prophets describe it. The end of Joel chapter 3, Amos chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 25, text after text, Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah chapter 14. We don't have time to go over it. So I imagine the disciples thought, 
after Israel comes to the knowledge of Yeshua, then we will get delivered by God's mighty power. And then the nations will come to the knowledge of God. And then we will go out from Israel and disciple the nations. The disciples had a very logical order as to how things would develop, which was how you would expect them to develop if you study the prophets. That would be the expectation. As a matter of fact, what the prophets described will still happen, just as they said. But that understanding in the apostles, the shlichim, oriented them toward only going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, just like Yeshua. It's not until Acts chapter 9, when the Holy Spirit came upon Paul and the power of God knocked him to the ground, Shaul, and that he was taken into Damascus, met up with a disciple named Ananias who prayed for him, where he was given the charge to bring the good news to the Gentiles, to the nations. This was a surprise. And there was no way for this to be accepted by the apostles unless God worked independently with them, because Shaul was not part of the original twelve. And so to prepare the way for a mission to the Gentiles, in Acts chapter 10, we find that God had to get a hold of the lead apostle, the lead shaliach, Shimon Kepha. And he does this by giving him a vision on the roof. Do you all remember this? He was up on the roof, like that old song in the 60s that we used to listen to. Remember that one? Up on the roof, you know? After a hard days of work, you go up on the roof in Manhattan and you chill out, right? So Peter was up on the roof, but not in Manhattan. He was up on the roof. In, in um, Jaffa. And he was chilling out in Jaffa. Drinking some Jaffa orange juice, probably. I don't know. And all of a sudden, he has this vision while food is being cooked down below. And he sees a sheet come down. You all remember this, right? And on the sheet were all sorts of foods that Jewish people are not supposed to eat. Chinese food, largely. And he says, My, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then, after three times, the people come from Cornelius. And you remember that while Peter was still preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on them before the invitation even was given. And then Peter says, who can forbid water, seeing these have received like gift as we? And the proof that God had received them without circumcision. This was the shocking thing. Because the dominant Pharisees at that time, the Shamites said, a Gentile could never have a place in the age to come without circumcision. So, Peter says, who can forbid water? He immerses them in water in the name of Yeshua, which incorporates them into the body of believers. I don't even think Peter understood the implications of what he was doing because he had taught in Acts, believe, be immersed in water, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Here they receive the Holy Spirit before they're immersed. So he said, get them into the water quick. They already have the Holy Spirit because they had the manifestations. He comes back to Jerusalem and the other shlichim and leaders laid into him and thought he did a terrible thing because it would compromise the purity and holiness of the messianic movement and would actually delay the, uh, delay the, uh, the goal of the second coming of the Lord and the salvation of Israel. They were angry at him. And Peter shared the whole supernatural way thing, things developed. And they said, well, what do you know? God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. Now, they didn't have an interpretation of it yet. The whole idea that there is a body of believers with Jew and Gentile that are being joined in one new man and something, that was, that was, they didn't have any of that understanding. 
What's going on? God is ahead of us. And you'll find a lot of times in your life that God is ahead of what you can understand. And you're kind of following the Spirit. And you've got to catch up with God and understand it. That's what was going on here. And it's not until Acts chapter 15 that you get the first important interpretation of the meaning of what was going on. And that interpretation is repeated in Romans chapter 15. And we're really only going to look at four texts today in defining the identity of the church. We're going to look at Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at Romans chapter 15, very briefly. Then we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 and Romans chapter 11. Very quickly. In Acts chapter 15... After Peter shares the story of what happened with Cornelius, and Paul shares the story of what happened on the mission field, and maybe Shaul had an interpretation, we don't know yet, we read that Yaakov, James, Jacob is what we like to call him because that was actually his name, he said, Brothers, listen to me in verse 13. Shimon has described how God first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. The words of the prophet agree as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild the fallen tabernacle of David. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, namely the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says Adonai, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, I judge not to trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but to write them to abstain from the contamination of idols, from sexual immorality, and from what is strangled and from blood. Now, Yaakov quotes a passage from Amos chapter 9 about the coming of the Messiah, the restoration of the tabernacle of David to its fullness, And that when that restoration takes place, the nations are going to come into the kingdom of God, but they're going to come into the kingdom of God as the nations that they are. They don't convert and become Jews. And you have to ask yourself how he quotes a passage about the millennium to solve this problem. What was he thinking? Just to note, the tabernacle of David here does not refer to David going out into that place where he used to worship where there was an ark and dancing the charismatic two-step, which charismatics think is the restoration of the charismatic uh, worship, which is the tabernacle of David, and they think that in the Pentecostal movement the tabernacle of David was restored. It has to do with David's house and government, which was described in Hebraic thought as a tabernacle. Because in the tabernacle, you're covered, just like the tabernacle of God. So you're under the covering of the, covering of the rule of David, or David's greater son, the Messiah. And Amos anticipates that the tabernacle of David will end in ruins, which it did. At the end of the first commonwealth of Israel, whose last um, survival was in the southern tribes of Judah, destroyed by the Babylonians, and after the destruction of Babylon in 586 B.C., there never was a Davidic ruler again. There was a governor, yes, the Zerubbabel was the governor, but nobody was ever allowed to be king again. And after the Maccabeans, you didn't have a restoration of the Davidic rule. You had the Hasmoneans that were not Davidic rulers. And so what happens is, when Yeshua dies and rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, Yaakov sees that already God has begun to fulfill the word of the restoration of the tabernacle. See, for the apostles, the kingdom of God was breaking into this world. It was already here. It already began, but it won't come in fullness until the second coming. So with the outpouring of the Spirit at the Feast of Shavuot, 
with the signs and wonders that were taking place, with the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection, the kingdom had already come in power in a very partial way, but a real way. And therefore, if Yeshua now is the Messiah and he has begun to rule from heaven at the right hand of God, though he will return and literally rule in Jerusalem, if that is the case, then those things that have to do with the age to come are already taking place now. We're already experiencing the Spirit. We're already experiencing healing. We're already experiencing power. And we're already experiencing the restoration of our lives being put in right order. Well, if those are age-to-come kinds of things, then it is appropriate that we experience the age-to-come thing of Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. Because if Gentiles are coming into the kingdom of God, they are a foreshadowing and anticipation of the millennial age. So what Yaakov sees is that there is a saved remnant of the nations that appropriately is being gathered now because Yeshua has already begun to reign. David's tabernacle has already begun to be reestablished. And though the saved remnant from the nations is an anticipation and a foreshadowing, and a prophetic sign of the age to come. Therefore, let's not trouble them to be circumcised and live a Jewish life. But in the teach, and by the way, this is repeated in Romans chapter 15, where Shaul says, in describing what is happening with the gathering of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God, He says in Romans chapter 15 this. As it is written. Okay, verse 8. For I declare that Messiah has become a servant to the circumcised for the sake of God's truth in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will give you praise among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise Adonai, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. So... The Gentiles are to rejoice with his people. Who are the his people? Israel, the Jewish people. So you have the Gentiles now in faith, in coming to the Lord with his people, Israel. Do you see this in Romans chapter 15? Very important. Now we get to Ephesians. We have a whole different element. It's not just that the Gentiles coming to the Lord is a foreshadowing of the age to come. But in the teaching of Shaul, the Gentiles who come to the Lord share priestly status with Israel in this age. doesn't say the ones who come after his coming will have that status. But there is a priestly status. And I want us to concentrate on Ephesians chapter 2. So the first thing we say is, Why is there a mission to the Gentiles in the book of Acts? So that we can see a foreshadowing of the age to come because it's a proof that Yeshua is the Messiah. Do you understand that Gentiles coming to believe in the God of Israel is a proof that Yeshua is the Messiah? All right. Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what Yeshua says about the Gentiles. And the language is astonishing. You are dead in your trespasses and sins... At that time you walked in the way of this world in conformity to the world of the domain of the air, the rule of the spirit who is now operating in the sons of disobedience. We too all lived among them in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. By nature we were children of wrath, just like the others. But God was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with the Messiah. And he's saying together, Jew and Gentile here. He made us, Jew and Gentile, alive together in the Messiah. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in the Messiah Yeshua to show in the age to come the measureless richness of his grace and kindness toward us. 
This is astonishing language, and you can't get too used to it. It should really bowl you over when you see the, fir- the full force of it. Yeshua, when he is raised from the dead and descended, was seated at the right hand of the Father. Being seated at the right hand of the Father is the highest place of status and rule that is attainable in the whole of the creation, in the whole of the universe. The Bible tells us that the tabernacle that Moses made was a copy of the realities of heaven, and the center of the heavenly reality of the heavenly tabernacle is the throne of God. And that is where Yeshua is seated. And now it says, if we could see with our spiritual eyes, not with our physical perception, that we are seated with him in that place. So not only have the Gentiles with the Jews come to faith in Yeshua and had their sins forgiven, and not only are they anticipating the age to come when the nations come into the kingdom of God, but they in this age have attained a status of priesthood at the very place where Yeshua is enthroned by God, that we are seated with him in heavenly places. This is astonishing language, and it leads to the argument of Shaul that Jews who believe in Yeshua and Gentiles who believe in Yeshua constitute a special priesthood together in him. The Jewish people as a nation are a priesthood, but we are a priesthood explicitly in Yeshua in a unique way. So he goes on and says this in chapter 2. Therefore, in verse 11, keep in mind that once you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by those called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh, at that time you were separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. I'm reading from the Tree of Life version, the New Messianic Jewish version. And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, But now in the Messiah, Yeshua, you who are once far off and been brought near by the blood of the Messiah, for he is our peace, the one who made the two into one and broke down the middle wall of separation. Within his flesh he made powerless the hostility, the law code of mitzvot contained in regulations. He did this in order to create with himself one new man from the two groups, making peace, and to reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. And he came and proclaimed shalom to you who are far away, and shalom to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by the same Spirit. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens with God's people. Who's the God's people here? The Jewish people. You Gentiles who are in Yeshua are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. All right. This is so oftentimes misunderstood. This has an interpretation in the history of the church. It's called the third race interpretation. That when a person comes to Yeshua, he's now no longer Jewish and no longer Gentile. You've now become a member of the third race, described as the one new man, the one new humanity. So there, and, and then it's, you know, it says of Galatians, there's neither Jew or Gentile, neither male nor female, and that doesn't quite fit in. Although it might fit into our contemporary society. Gee, do you think that Galatians was uh, anticipating transgender movements, Ron? I don't know. It's a joke, folks. Don't anybody get on the internet and get me into trouble here. But the idea is not that the one new man is neither Jew nor Gentile. It's Jew and Gentile. And the Jews are still Jews, and the Gentiles are still Gentiles, but they share a priestly status. And what he's saying here is that the wall of partition was broken down, which is based in commandments. Where are the commandments? Are they rabbinical commandments? Well, they intensified it, and they were extensions, but he's talking about the commandments of Scripture that required degrees of separation 
in the temple, especially where you had the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles who wanted to turn to God could go into the court of the Gentiles in the temple. There was a nice place for them. Third class. Not second class, third class. Why? Because second class was Jewish women. They could go into the court of the women. And then first class were Jewish men. They alone could go into the inner court. And you know, the inner court where the altar was, where the priests did the sacrifices, was separated from the court of the women and the women, uh, women from the Gentiles by a wall. A wall of partition. That's where the wall of partition was. But now, when you're dealing with the ultimate spiritual reality, those commandments that required that separation in terms of how we relate to each other as priesthood has been destroyed in Yeshua because when Yeshua died and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, access was made not into the earthly temple but into the heavenly temple so that now Jew and Gentile in Yeshua have equal access into the most holy place where they're seated together at the throne with Yeshua at the right hand of God. What happens in the book of Ephesians, more than any other place in the New Covenant Scriptures, is the Gentile believer is raised to an equal priestly status with the Jewish believer. And hence the priestly status with the Jewish people. They don't become Jews. He says, with his people. And Paul calls this the mystery that was revealed to him in verse 6 of chapter 3 that the Gentiles are joint heirs and fellow members of the same body and co-sharers of the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the good news and that Paul Shaul was given special revelation of this so what happens what comes out of the feast of Shavuot that's not anticipated except by the languages perhaps in Acts chapter 2 is a whole new connection of Jew and Gentile in Yeshua where they become part of a fellowship in the Spirit together and become one new man and share an equal status at the right hand of the Father seated with Yeshua in heavenly places. Pretty astonishing. Then in Romans chapter 11, we read one more image. The Ephesians, so here's the first image, image number one, the anticipation of the nations coming to the knowledge of God. Number two, a new humanity containing Jew and Gentile who are seated with him in heavenly places. And then we have the Romans 11 understanding, which is that the Gentiles are grafted in to a Jewish olive tree. Why do we call it a Jewish olive tree? Because Shaul says, how much more, in verse 24, will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? If it's their own, it's the Jewish olive tree. And the olive tree is really the people of God. Before the coming of Yeshua, that olive tree was Jewish. The only people of God on the world were the Jewish people. But now with the coming of the gospel... Gentiles from the nations are grafted into this Jewish olive tree. So he describes it this way. He says, You were grafted in among them, in verse 17. And then he says, You are grafted in among them. You partake of the root of the olive tree with its richness. By nature, a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree. 
So the place of the Gentiles is to be grafted into this Jewish olive tree and connected. And the image here is an agricultural, organic image. Although I don't want to stress that word too much because the personal is more important than the organic. But I want to wrap up here. He says concerning the Jewish believers, verse 16, If the first fruit is holy, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he says of the Jewish believers, they are the saved remnant of Israel. He says of the Jewish believers that they are the first fruits that sanctify the rest of Israel. So do the Jewish believers that make holy the rest of the nation that hasn't yet come. That must mean that the Gentiles have that role with their nations. They're cut out of a wild olive tree, but grafted into the Jewish olive tree. And when you put this together, Acts chapter 15, Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, and Romans chapter 11, you begin to understand something of the identity of the church. And I'm going to give you what I believe is the definition that comes out of this and why it's so important for you to get this. So I'm going to use the term church. The church is those from all nations who have become joined to the nation of Israel and its destiny for the sake of world redemption. The church is, as to its identity, a joined to Israel reality. And the church largely doesn't understand its own identity. It has an identity crisis. It thinks itself apart from Israel. The church does not replace Israel, but it's an extension of the meaning of Israel or an extended Israel into the nations without replacing the Jewish nation itself. It's an extension, and therefore it's a grafting in, and therefore the church is, as to its identity, a people who have been joined to Israel and Israel's destiny for the sake of world redemption. You say, Dan, how are the people of the church joined to Israel? They're joined to Israel through attachment to Yeshua, who is the king of Israel and part of Israel. And they're joined to Israel through being joined to the saved remnant of Israel, the Jewish believers, with whom they become one new man. So therefore, through attachment to the saved remnant of Israel, which is the first fruits that sanctifies the rest of Israel, the people from the nations in Yeshua are joined to Israel and its destiny. Therefore, Israel is part of the identity of the church. And you know what? Because the church of the nations was given birth through Israel, the church should be part of the identity of Israel. And that's kind of shocking. The church is part of our identity because we gave it birth. It's our progeny, sometimes a rebellious child, but it's ours. Neither Israel understands its identity with the church, nor does the church understand its identity in being bonded to Israel. And this identity crisis prevents us from fulfilling our destiny in this age, which is to make Israel jealous and to affect the second coming. The reason this is so important is only when the church sees itself at this level of identification with Israel will the church be one with the Messianic Jews who spiritually are part of the body of believers as well as part of Israel. We Jewish believers are part of both the body of believers and part of the nation of Israel. But only when the church sees itself that way, and only when the Jewish believers see the church that way, will we partner together to make Israel jealous to see the second coming of the Lord. I know we do it a little bit, but we will not do it in sufficient power until we see it's an identity issue. This is why Shaul says in Romans chapter eleven fourteen that making Israel jealous is a Jew-Gentile partnership thing. You say, what do you mean? Did he say that? Yeah. He said, I, a Jew, seek to make my people jealous 
to provoke them to jealousy and say some. But you Gentiles are to do that as well. And I'm going to tell you something about the Messianic Jewish movement. Kind of a secret that not everybody admits in the Messianic Jewish world. The primary evangelistic success in this movement in the diaspora has been when there has been church Messianic Jewish congregational partnership. We have not been successful without joining with the people from the churches who have a heart for the Jewish people and that we together train and learn how to win our people to the Lord. Because it's part of the identity of the Gentiles as well to provoke Israel to jealousy. Without the Gentiles joining with us in that mission, we're going to not be effective. You should all know this automatically. When you as a Jew go to a Jewish person and say that you believe in Yeshua, they will say, you traitor. But when a Gentile says to a Jewish person that you believe in Jesus, they say, well, that's what you're supposed to believe. You're a Gentile. But then when the Gentile says, yes, but he is the Jewish Messiah, and I'm committed to Israel, and I am so appreciative of your people before forgiving us the word, forgiving us the Messiah, forgiving us salvation, and I'm absolutely committed to Israel and its destiny. Then the Jewish person says, oh, you wonderful person. They open up. The Gentile has much more ability to open Jewish hearts because they're not traitors to anything. This is why the work that we are called to is a partnership. Are you with me here? So I want to come back to this. The church is to its identity. Those called from all nations who through faith in Yeshua become joined to Israel and its destiny for the sake of world redemption. They don't have to take on the responsibility of Jewish life, but they have to take on the responsibility of commitment to the Jewish people and understanding their Jewish roots. And the second part, for the Jewish people, those who have come especially to believe in Yeshua, is the church is part of our identity, and therefore we must be in tikkun. A, if we're going to have restoration, we have to be a pro-church movement. Despite all the sins and mistakes and things we criticize, our Messianic Jewish movement is a pro-church movement. If we get this right, it's going to bring us into balance. And this balance is going to make us more effective. And it's going to make us not look flaky like we look in some sectors. So I want you to get this definitional thing. I think it really fits very strongly on the Feast of Shavuot, where it all began. Amen? Let's stand and I'll pray for you.